Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. Uh, we're back. We're back from our slowdown. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, it was, you know, a bit of a summer, summer slowdown, but um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more in this sort of anniversary special um, for Halloween. Um, Halloween special that we'll probably do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny to me that, like, we, di- we didn't intend it to be so, but, like, the first episode aired on Halloween. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, well, I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe... Maybe there's something vaguely Marxist about Halloween. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure what, but maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's it's the sort of um, the zombie up- uprising sort of stuff where the, you know that that's the the horror movie metaphor for the masses and so on. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, this. Uh, this time we're starting uh, what is probably going to be a three-part series, um, reading Andrew Feenberg's Transforming Technology, which is a book that was released um, oh, quite a while ago, but the, this actual edition is from 2002. But I'm led to believe that it's actually um, a sort of an updated version of a previous book, which is called The Critical Theory of Technology. Um, and, and Kyle, you're actually familiar with this guy, right? Uh, yes, I was Andrew Feenberg's um, MA student. Uh, so I <clears throat> spent, uh, two years with him as my advisor, uh, at Simon Fraser university. And, uh, so I was in his seminars, um, and my approach to this book, I think will be different from everything else we've covered because I guess it's very close to my own, uh, life story. Um, and like, I keep calling him Andrew because that's <laughs> what he preferred to be called in class. But uh, nice. uh, Feinberg uh, was um, was a huge influence on me. Um, uh, really, uh, I guess I was still quite, you know, or very much in my formative years as a MA student, and uh, he had a really big impact on the way I saw the world and um, in the way that a really kind of intelligent and uh, and inspiring teacher uh, can be, right? So um, I, I think that I have my criticisms and uh, questions about this book, and you know, it's an it's an older book, so it we have the benefit of hindsight in looking back on it. But um, the sort of fundamental ideas here really did shape my worldview uh, in. Uh, the decades after, uh, or sorry, in, in uh, about the decade after I finished my uh, finished my MA, and um, and I think were really kind of important in getting me to a place where I could become a co-host on this show. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like this, this is um, this is an important book, and it's this is like. Um... It's an important book for us because, like, it's this. This was one of the first candidates for an episode that we we ever sort of talked about, right? Like that, um, way back when we were starting. Um, I, I'm glad we waited because this is um, this is an important work and it deserves a sort of um, high quality uh, episode series about it. The the ideas are very important, right? Like, I think they're they're still still extremely relevant today. Uh, I mean, what sixteen years or whatever after the initial publication. Um, they're also, they're, they're still kind of rare, right? Like you don't see a lot of this, um, this kind of analysis out there. So, um, yeah, the, the philosophy of technology 
remains a pretty small subfield of, of philosophy of technology. And if, if you're working in that field, you kind of tend to know everybody in the field because it's, it's such a small subgrouping of, of what is considered philosophy. Yeah, well, I guess we better get into it. So we're going to be covering the, um, the first three chapters, which uh, constitute the, the introduction and the two chapters of the first section of the the book um in terms of page count it's almost half the book though i think um yes it's a substantial uh, chunk it's really like all of the theory and then the part that we're not covering is like the case studies and stuff so uh it's it's the densest part of the book for Mm, sure (laughs) yeah um Yeah, well, I guess we'll better get into it with um, with chapter one, the introduction, which is titled uh, "The Varieties of Theory," um, and it sort of opens up with this um, this thing that, like, yeah, like we we have this sort of um, you know idea that uh, technological society is condemned to authoritarian styles of management, to you know mindless work and alienation and and crazy consumption and such. Um, but that the book challenges these cliches. This is this is like this. This is an answer to Ted Kaczynski, right? Like this is um, no Ted. You are actually wrong. Uh, technological societies can be reformed. It, it is possible to uh, to change this stuff. Um, and like a core a core part of his argument is that like a lot of these problems are down to the anti democratic values that are that govern technological development. That it's it's a lack of democracy that causes these problems, not anything kind of intrinsic to technology itself. Yeah, and this is specifically a thing that he refers to called uh, operational autonomy. Um, And that is uh, the power to make strategic choices um, between different sorts of um, rationalizations without taking into account, like, externalities, uh, customs of practice, uh, what workers want or think uh or uh the um impact of the technology on sort of broader society so you know this is a thing that he identifies with those in power uh basically the management um and in the case of a capitalist society like the capitalists right um the you know uh it is it is characteristic of capitalism that capital is able to accumulate uh, without any reference to the destruction it wreaks outside of the profit gains that it can it can have, right? Yeah, and this is also sort of an answer to the um, that sort of accelerationist bit as well about like the autonomy of capital. And uh, you know, capital as an intelligent alien force that moves all of its own, and it's like, not, no, not really. I mean, it's it's a, it's it, it's an op- it, the operational autonomy is rooted in social interests, and it's it's an encoding thereof. It's not a, a sort of a truly autonomous kind of force. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Is that it's not truly autonomous. Like it is, um. It is alien in the sense that it is a self-reproducing social logic, but it is nevertheless um, not alien in the sense that the accelerationist really thought it was, right? Like, where it's literally just like this kind of Lovecraftian horror thing that has come from some weird outer dimension to, uh, to alter the course of history. 
and even of humanity, right, to turn us into some kind of weird, you know, inhuman, unimaginable uh, Terminator beings. Uh, like, I feel like you really don't get that sense from uh, transforming technology. No, you, you in fact get something quite different where it's like that hum- humanity and technology are entangled phenomena where, you know, the, the tools, we, we shape the tools and then the tools shape us. Um, mm-hmm. and there's, there's nothing, there's nothing truly alien about it, you know? It's um, basically optimistic in that sense about the direction of, uh, technological and social development. Um, right. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's, it's certainly optimistic. Like it maintains this kind of hope, um, for the possibility of, of change and, and transformation and, um, Especially like against the um, yeah, and especially like he he calls out particularly the the end of history sort of thing as being a um, you know that 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 foreclosing of those kind of horizons, and um, this is all sort of an argument against that, uh, which is pretty pretty wonderful. We we get sort of introduced to our first sort of big core ideas here, um, the notions of instrumental and substantive theories of technology. Um, which are two, two existing sort of old school sort of ways of looking at technology, which uh, Feinberg will propose an alternative to uh, once he's explained what's uh, what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, it's the good old uh, here is theory A, here's theory B, here's how they both are wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. That's, set um, them up and knock them down. <laughs> it's, a, it's a recurring theme throughout this whole sort of book that... Um, Feinberg is, is either answering the incompleteness of previous theories or he's finishing off uh, thoughts for people where a given thinker got a lot of the way there and then couldn't really finish it off. And Feinberg comes along with the the, the, the missing piece of the puzzle that sort of uh, makes a coherent uh, alternative argument possible. This book is also like it's it's super dense, but it's actually a pretty e- relatively easy read. Like Feinberg is a good writer. It's, it's very clear. Yeah, Feinberg is um a really clear writer especially for a philosopher um and i can say from having been in his seminars he's also extremely good at explaining difficult concepts like even just in speech in class like it it is a talent of his um and it really comes through Mm. in this book um yeah so i mean do you want to do you want to start us off with the the instrumental and substantive theories yeah um, yeah, so the instrumental theory uh, is really about the sort of common sense notion of technology that comes down to us uh, in the modern world, right? That technology is value-free. It's the classic guns don't kill people, people kill people argument, right? That it's indifferent to the ends to which it's put. It's indifferent to the politics for which it is used, you know, to just further that analogy, uh, doesn't really matter if a fascist or a communist is using a rifle, it still shoots people, right? And um, the actual like structure and logic of technology is rational. Um, it's based in nature, right? <clears throat> it's, it's an embodiment of some natural, neutral, rational value. It's just a, a, a concretion of that, that, that neutrality. Right, like, you know... Um, Again, uh, to take another example, uh, the Soviets and uh, the Americans were both building rockets to go into space, but the fundamental pre- uh, premises of rocketry were the same between them, right? Like the the social logic um, 
at face value does not seem to enter into the technical considerations, right? Um, and and what this means is that there is a universal criterion of efficiency that applies to all technology because there's only one sort of map that technology can be built with. Um, and so the question is just like, uh, given the uh, design or the design purpose of the technology, how well do you achieve it, right? How fast does your train go? How many people can you carry? Um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's, uh, in, it's, it's, it's indifferent to its social context. Um, that is something that only shapes the uses to which it is put, uh, not its design on any fundamental level. Yeah. And this is this is pretty widely believed as well. Like this is actually this is a default position for for a lot of people. Just like, no, of course technology is neutral. Why wouldn't it be? You know. Yeah, well, because it has a certain uh, kind of common sense validity to it, right? Like, um, you can just give examples like the ones that I just gave, and people will say, "Oh yeah, makes sense." Mm, um, yeah. Well, except for um, Feinberg, right? Like he'll he'll get into you know. That it, it's not an accident that the gun, you know, has the trigger towards the firer and the opening towards the uh, target. You know, that's like there, there is, there is in fact an encoding of value in the design of the instrument itself, right? You know, um, but that that we'll get to that much later. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's sort of numerous levels at which um, interests factor into the design of technology. Um, it's just that they're not it's when you give those kinds of very simple like one artifact doing one thing examples it is uh, it is easy to imagine um, that the instrumental theory of technology is correct and to the point that a lot of engineers uh, tend to sort of buy into this theory uh, like sort of screen out the inconsistencies in their experience uh, that don't don't agree with this um so yeah so the fundamental point here though is that technology can be limited by non-technical factors but it can't be transformed by them so we can choose to say um do we want to use nuclear power do we not want to use nuclear power it doesn't make any difference to the way a nuclear power plant operates it's just a question of whether we'll use it or not and for what purpose like, are we going to use a nuclear power plant to build uh, to make fuel for uh, nuclear weapons, or are we going to use it for peaceful power creation, or are we not going to use it at all? Those are social decisions which are kind of obviously involved, but they they make no difference to um, the, the the principles of uh, nuclear power engineering mm. at first glance. Yeah, just uh, something that popped into my head there is it's it's um it's a lot like the sort of choice in a video game of like do you use the shotgun or the um or the plasma rifle, it's like you can choose one or the other, but never influence the actual design of either, you know, mm -hmm. um, that like it's, it's purely about usage and non-usage that like you can, you can take it or leave it, but never have any other kind of say in it. Yeah. Yeah. But like in contrast to that, you have the substantive theory um, of technology in which technology isn't neutral and it, um, it, it sort of forms a cultural system and structures the entire social world. You, you can usually structure it as an object of control, right? This is a kind of like the um, the objection on the sort of basis of like, oh, well, that technology 
structures the world in in sort of ways that are uh, controlling and harmful um and it's it's a sort of also like this uh, expansive and invasive notion of of technology as like um spreading like a virus into the society um pessimistic and sort of apocalyptic usually and 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 mystifying like i mean i, I mentioned kaczynski earlier but like that was the core of what he was talking about that like you know that technological society is a society of domination and to him there was no way out of that though it's just like it's doomed because that's just what technology is and that's what the follow-on effects of technology are um yeah and this is this is also a theory that's uh, associated with like martin heidegger um and you know informed uh though it was certainly not the only thing but uh it informed his involvement uh with nazism right um that as as part of this kind of apocalyptic thinking about technology in his in his early phase he was sort of like well you know maybe maybe the nazis can somehow like stake out a kind of like ideal german uh non uh technological uh dominated society for us and then in his later phase he was more like no, there's like literally nothing we can do as people. Like the only a, only a god can save us. So very very apocal- apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, there's a sort of decent example here as well uh, to kind of illustrate the difference between the two um, uh, theories. That like the example of say fast food, right? Like that an instrumentalist would look at fast food as pure nourishment without any kind of social complication whatsoever. Whereas a substantivist would look at the phenomena of fast food as um, eventually influencing how the society is structured by, let's say, eroding the tradition of mealtimes shared by a family, and also that, that kind of feedback loop where, it, yes, it is nice to have fast food available when you're in a big rush, but having it available enables rushing um, and enables a faster pace of life, and there's a kind of a feedback loop between those, and that's what sort of scares the shit out of the substantivists. Um, yeah, and there is a way in which substantive theory follows from instrumental theory, because if you have this universal criterion of efficiency, and that becomes um, the decisive thing in making social choices, then you get into a world of substantive rationality, like right, like in terms of, or sorry, substantive uh, technological theory, in the sense that like people's choices don't actually matter. The only thing that matters is efficiency. And once that becomes true, then the world becomes a very inhuman place. Yeah. Um, um, that's a pretty crucial uh, idea that'll come up again and again. The um, the notion of like efficiency being posited as a sort of universal ranking function um, that can differentiate between the good and the bad within the, the technological society. Um, yeah, it is, uh, as, as Weber said, uh, an iron cage of rationalization. Yeah. Um, but these, these, um, these two theories actually share quite a lot of underlying assumptions in that um, the assumption is always that technology can't be changed. It's just something you can have more or less of. But yeah, I'd like the next section then to the, the author talks about, like, um, so we mentioned just a little bit before that, like, um, for the instrumentalists, like, technology can either... It can be limited by non-technical functions, but it can never be changed by them. So he's going to talk here about, like, the ways in which technology is or can be kind of bound and unbound. And the, the, the historical ways in which societies have tried to, um, tried to limit technology. 
Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting because he splits it into like moral boundaries and political boundaries. Um, with the sort of um, on the moral side of it, you have like um, you know conservatives bemoaning the kind of er- erosion of organic culture and spiritual values and that sort of thing, and then the the reaction is kind of. Um, a call for like a restoration of the holy, you know, like that some some things need to be excluded from te- the technological realm in order to maintain their sanctity. Um, yeah, and like you see a lot of this in uh, actual philosophy of technology that um, many many philosophers of technology are not really like Feinberg. Like Feinberg is a little bit of a of an oddball in the field of philosophy of technology in the sense that like he's a Marxist, whereas most philosophers of technology kind of fall more into this sort of stuff where it's like bemoaning the erosion of our organic culture and spiritual values and, and the holy, right? So like bemoaning the degeneration of society and like the end of shared family meals, right? Like the, that kind of stuff is, is, is quite common in, um, in uh, philosophy of technology, yeah, um, yeah, it is. It's it's un- <laughs> that's, this is kind of why we're we're covering this stuff because it's it's a fairly unique perspective on it. But yeah, I mean, the, the common thread here is always a sort of a return to simplicity or or some sort of thing as a kind of reaction to technology. But there's there's problems here, right? One being the the uncritical acceptance that of you know the the dominant technological paradigm as you know being just something that you can have more or less of and never actually change, like we like we said previously. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I was going to say, like, this informs a lot of environmentalist thinking too, right? Like, it's, um, uh, this is absolutely, I, I grew up with a lot of hippies, and this is absolutely the theory of technology they have, which is just like, the world's going to the dogs, it's, an, it's a never-ending encroachment on the natural, all that is holy is being profaned, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, um, but like Feinberg has kind of objections to all these this sort of stuff, right? That the the moral objections don't really work because of a couple of reasons. Like one being that it fails to see any kind of positive potential in technology. Like it, it fails to see the liberatory potential of new technologies. There's also the issue of like the definition of the domain. Like where's the line? What's inside the realm of technolo- technological mediation and what's considered to be outside of it? And it just sort of concedes defeat on the possibility of change. Like that, like. Yeah, I mean, even if you do manage to draw a line somewhere, you know it's going to move, right? Like, if if you've already observed the thing encroaching on your territory, I, I, what what are you going to do by putting up a fence? Like, you you know it's going to knock down the fence, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's kind of like um, the progressives. Uh, so you know, he talks about progressives like uh, worried about the erosion of civil norms by technology and technocracy, um, and the need for a restoration of sort of rationality based on um, debate and discussion and values. Um, and he's very much like talking about Habermas's, uh, Jürgen Habermas's perspective on, uh, on technology there. And, you know, it's kind of like that view of technology is like, it doesn't really have a good comeback to the substantive theory of technology. It's more like, yeah, but like, what if we just didn't think about that too much, right? Like, <laughs> maybe things aren't so bad, right? It's kind of the, the, the way you end up with uh, that that sort of thinking. It's like, you know, like, yeah, we can draw lines and stuff, but it's like, well, but then how? And like, you know, like, how are you going to draw lines when you live in a society that is defined by international economic competition and the capitalist profit motive 
Like, what's the basis for drawing lines? What are you going to do about that? It's like, well, I don't know. It'll just kind of work out. Maybe uh, it's, it's, there's no real good answer. Mm. Yeah, that that, that, that that the international bit does relate to the next section, but I want to dwell on this one for just a slight moment longer because it's a variation on that sort of question that I ask primitivists or you know people who are get, get, getting in that direction of like, well, you've seen how this stuff develops into what we have now. Like, if you're if you're saying go back to something simpler, what's your plan for stopping that from developing from something simpler into something more complex, which is the thing you just saw happen? You know, like, yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Like, I mean, yeah, by all means, go back to you know nineteen seventy, but you have to realize that nineteen seventy turned into this, right? Like, that's there's a there's a there's a chain of dialectical causation there that led here. So you better have a big. I mean, even even Kaczynski didn't really have a plan for that, right? Like, it was just like I don't know, we just go primmy and hope hope for the best, you know. Um, but the the notion, yeah, of like yeah, like with international sort of um, boundaries and stuff, does bring us on to the political boundaries, um, of which the um, the sort of examples here are of like uh, nations trying to preserve sort of indigenous values while modernizing. And the two examples are um, are pre war Japan and the Soviet Union, yeah, which are really really interesting examples, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So absolutely, it was. It was the case that there was some thought in Japan um, uh, in before before the the Second World War uh, that was like very sort of um, oriented around this idea of like Asian technoculture um, and trying to stake out a sphere of the world that would be like authentically Asian, led by Japan that would be able to resist westernization and by extension western technoculture and well in the first place there's the obvious problem that the japanese lost the war but the uh more sort of like (laughs) i think the more fundamental problem is that a lot of that sort of like kyoto school style uh you know, speaking about personal history, <laughs> yeah, the people in my department who were writing this stuff um, at Kyoto <laughs> University, um, uh, a lot of their sort of thinking about how an Asian technoculture would work uh, was a little bit fuzzy and and kind of kind of a little bit. Um, I, I think a little bit too enthralled with the pretensions of empire. Um. Uh, yeah, and, and 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 it obviously didn't work, right? It, it, you know, uh, losing the war aside, the theory still seems a little bit dubious. Mm. So there just, there just wasn't much of an alternative there, and nothing nothing sort of materialized. Um. Well, I mean, it's like, first of all, how do you define Asianness? Right? There's a problem. Second of all, what is the relationship of Asianness to technology, and how does it fundamentally alter the the um, efficiency criterion? Right. It's not like you know the Japanese Zero was operating on some radically different uh, principles of aerodynamics than an American Mustang or whatever. Right. Like there's Japan was still fundamentally involved in a um, in a world that was uh, driven by competition and war and still was fundamentally creating artifacts 
that were meant to compete on those grounds. So I, I think that a lot of the theorizing was sort of very like high level abstract stuff, like very, very much not concrete. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, you know, these, these were people who were simultaneously deeply uh, trained in neo-Kantian philosophy and, uh, and, and some like concepts of like Buddhism, but that didn't really, and like we're in an environment of, of Japanese imperialism uh, and sort of counter Western uh, political movements. And that didn't really amount to a very good theory of technology, in my opinion. Yeah, that's, um, it's interesting. And then like, but they, that's, that's then uh, contrasted with the, the Soviet Union, um, which is a the, the very similar story, but like the much more, it's sort of like a future oriented rather than a past oriented thing, right? Like, um, but the, the commonality is that like, there, there's sort of two, two cultures that adopted and intensified uh, capitalist or Western technoculture or the techniques of it uh, to try and create a different society. And both kind of ended up more or less failing eventually and then converging back on just Western technoculture anyway. Um, yeah. And like in the case of Japan, like accelerating it <laughs> or like, like, yeah. you know, accelerating it and then, and then sort of coming to kind of redefine Western technoculture Right. Like that that boom of Japanese consumer electronics that happened in the 80s sort of became definitive of, of how we think about uh, consumer technology and, and, and cyberpunk in a way. Right. So it's it's not as though it was simply like subordinated to Western technoculture, but um, it definitely did not create an alternative to it um, in any kind of deeply meaningful way like you know uh maybe in japan most uh appliances talk to you or play little songs in the west they don't really do that is that a deeply meaningful distinction <laughs> I, no. I don't really think so right <laughs> no. like d does does the existence does the existence of fancy japanese toilets um does that that mark out a, a fundamentally distinct technoculture uh, i don't i don't think so not really um, but um at this point the um the instrumental theory basically collapses right that like because if technology were truly neutral then it should be able to serve all kinds of different ends but this convergence suggests otherwise right um and the sub the substantivists see the convergence as evidence that there is no alternative right um, and so the, the two theories only really differ in sort of attitude um, towards the same the same sort of outcome ultimately, um, which kind of sucks. <laughs> right, right, yeah. and and it, it it does this you know the sort of um, the failure of the Japanese imperial project, and you know like I I, I don't know if there's anything um, particularly Asian or Western about you know, conquest and, and war and imperialism. <laughs> I don't think there is, but, but it is, it is obviously the case that in the effort to establish this sort of like independent Asia, um, Japan like blatantly copied the sort of methods and, and ideas of Western imperialism and, and caused enormous violence and destruction across Asia in a way that isn't really distinguishable from the way that the Europeans went around and 
and you know killed and enslaved many many people uh so it's you know it, it's 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 it feels like in the case of the Soviet Union, it's kind of like you get these arguments that are sort of like the worst forms of like tanky discourse, right? Where it's like, well, but Stalin did it, therefore, or like you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's the sort of like crudest uh, form of like instrumental theory. It's like no regard for what actually happened. Or, like, how you could contextualize that. It's just who was using the technology. Who was enacting the policy. That's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, obviously, Stalin had, you know, fundamentally different values. And, therefore, everything he did was pretty much A-OK. -okay. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, that, 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 is, uh, that is some dubious theorizing. Yeah, very. Um, and in, in reaction to dubious theorizing, um, uh, Feinberg's going to try and develop a... Um, a critical theory of technology, which um, which argues uh, an actual alternative based on public participation in in technological decisions, um, because like the, the com another commonality between these examples is that like they're both examples of like state uh, state sponsored um, imposition on the technical process and excluded you know uh, popular participation. And it's kind of it's the core of kind of uh, Feinberg's argument that like. Technology can be transformed into you. You can transform into a different society, a, a different modern society, right? Like that's the crucial one, right? That it's a a modern alternative to capitalism, um, but only really on the basis of uh, mass participation in the design of the technical base, which was not the case for these two examples. Yeah, because the fundamental thing, the fundamental thing that was common between the Soviet Union. Japanese the Japanese Empire and uh, you know sort of baseline Western techno capital or to capitalist techno culture was this this um, top-down control the use of technology as a as a means of establishing top-down control for the purposes of strengthening the state and uh, and growing the capital base right um, you know, so because it's this it's this problem with the instrumentalist theory where it's like the state has values, the state will enact values. And then you say, well, how is the state going to enact values? Well, it's going to tell everybody what to do. It's mm -hmm. like, OK, well, it has values. All right. But then how is it actually going to make those values effective? And it's going to be through creating tools that build up the technical power of the state through means of sort of like top-down control um, to enact the agenda. But in the end, the means end up sort of overstripping what the agenda was in the first place. And it is just a re—it's a recapitulation of of capitalism, right? Basically, <laughs> it's like that's the authoritarian structure of technology and capitalism. So convergence over time—you just end end up back there anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and this this. And this isn't to say that there's no distinctions between these cultures, right? It, it's it's just like, you know, we saw in Red Plenty that there were plenty of peculiarities of the Soviet system, right? That like that are not common to our experience or to the common to the American experience at the same time. But I think what Feinberg does say is essentially that the the Soviet approach was kind of incoherent. Um, in that it was like trying to implement a socialist political agenda at the same time 
that it was trying to implement a capitalist modernization agenda, right? And those, those two things just, like, fundamentally did not cohere together. Um, hmm. Yeah. So moving on to the next section then, um, like, I mean, the answer to this is that we must create a a politics of technological transformation. And the sort of the initial touch point for this is the, the kind of uh, critical theory that we get out of kind of coming out of the Frankfurt School. And I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar, I'm not actually really familiar with these guys at all. So can you kind of explain what the, what the basis for this is? Uh, sure. So um, the critical, uh, critical theorists were people basically associated with um, the Frankfurt School um, was it Frankfurt School for Social Research or something like that, uh, which was originally set up as kind of like a social analysis think tanky kind of shop, uh, but which drew together a number of people, especially the ones who went on to be famous, because there were other people there. They just kind of got um, swept under the rug that were like pretty much like neo-Kantian philosophers who also were Marxists and they looked at sort of the ideas of neo-Kantian philosophy as the basis for social criticism, right? So, so philosophy isn't just going to be, you know, a thing that is, is narrowly confined to the traditional territory of philosophy. It is, it is something that is going to um, actually provide a sort of theoretical basis for um, the class struggle, for the realization of the socialist project. And they were not really the only people uh, at that time who had that sort of orientation. But really the sort of fundamental thing about the Frankfurt School that was important was that in going to the U.S., um, in seeing, you know, the rise of fascism, the Holocaust, uh, the atom bomb, all that kind of stuff. They developed, spe specifically um, Horkheimer and Adorno, uh, developed this very uh, pessimistic theory of um, civilization that was kind of like based on like neo-Kantianism and Hegelianism um, and, and had that Marxist background but was was deeply pessimistic about the way that history was going because you know they just they just seen Germany this this country that was you know considered to be like the center of civilization and stuff become this fascist nightmare and they saw technology which had been you know traditionally for marxists the idea of technical project uh, progress and social progress were deeply intertwined Right. That like as technology grows, as the means of production become more sophisticated, so, too, does science become more sophisticated and therefore so, too, do we become more enlightened. Right. All of that thinking uh, was was quite common in in the socialist movement before the Second World War, um, even if people were sort of like shocked by the First World War. Um, but uh they they instead saw like that there was a dialectic of enlightenment as their book was called where this you know the basically the substantive theory of technology like technical progress and social progress became unlinked and technical progress has gone on to create this kind of monstrosity that is 
now taking over the world, where ration rationality itself has become perverted, right? And then how can we possibly criticize the the world as it is if we cannot do so rationally? Like if, if rationality itself is perverted, what are we going to do? And like these sorts of problems and these kinds of concerns and questions were really what made uh, the Frankfurt School uh, famous. And uh, the, the specific connection to Feinberg is that he was a student of Herbert Marcuse, who was one of the younger members of the Frankfurt School and was influenced by Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, and who went on to become um, a sort of major figure in like the 60s uh, student movement, uh, you know, as like an elder statesman kind of, because he, he first of all sort of like used Adorno and, and Horkheimer's critique of society uh, to develop this theory of one dimensionality that, you know, society was just like everything was subverted to the reproduction of the capitalist system according to a very narrow and inhumane definition of rationality. And he was calling desperately for some kind of rational critique of rationality, some kind of next level of critique that could take us away from that narrow definition that had just railroaded us, railroaded us down this inhuman path and, and create a sort of meta level of rationality that would be able to criticize that society and create a better world. So that really struck a chord with people in the 60s, and uh, including Feinberg himself. Yeah, he's, uh, he's picking became, up the torch, right? <laughs> yeah, who became Marcuse's student and went on to sort of develop Marcuse's theories of technology in a more, uh, more sort of like concretely sophisticated way. Yeah, and that's um, that's what that's what he ends up with here. He's sort of outlining a bit of the um, the sort of the gist of the critical theory of technology, um, which is going to pick up the torch from there. Um, and it sort of it resembles substantive theory in that you know technology isn't neutral. It's it shapes us and we shape it, and it shapes our future choices. And choices choice is um, a kind of a key word here, right? Because um, the choices made become embodied in the technology and in the technical infrastructure. And so the the use of the thing is no longer value-free because it sort of represents a choice that was made. Um, and as we'll get to later, probably in chapter three, it sort of also represents the, the keeping open of a further choice on the behalf of a particular set of uh, personal interests that is, that is constantly reproduced in the system. So yeah, I mean, the te technical development isn't autonomous. Aut autonomous, it's uh, shaped by human action. So it's, it's like, yeah, it's a rejection of that kind of fatalism as well. Um, it's, it's, a, it's sort of an agreement with instrumentalism in a way that like it rejecting fatalism and entirely, you know, disagreeing with instrumentalism in that technology isn't actually neutral. So it's kind of a, it feels like a kind of synthesis of the positions, you know? Yeah. And, and, and for Marcuse, the, the sort of fundamental problem was that he, he felt like, uh, like other members of the Frankfurt School, that the working class had become integrated into capitalism completely because capitalism delivered the goods, quote unquote, in terms of like consumer goods and a comfortable life and all this stuff. Remember, this is at the height of Fordism um, that he's writing. The workers had no actual critical role to play. Um, and so he looked to sort of like um, minorities uh, but also just like the student movement as people who like could identify within this techno structure itself something oppressive 
that they could they could react against. And yeah, at some points he was kind of more in the substantivist theory. In some points he kind of gestured more towards like the things that uh, that Feinberg developed. Yeah, and I guess sort of moving on to the next section, the kind of um, we're sort of introduced to these. Uh, sort of notion of like yeah that like the use of technologies kind of denotes kind of like civil- civilizational types and kind of like types of people is the argument that sort of like yeah that like against contra the sort of instrumentalism that like the use of technology uh, and the pursuit of a given technical path kind of just defines a person as being a part of a kind of civilization within the system there's that there are there are many publics within the system you know the your interaction with the technosphere and your use of it puts you in one or the other sort of categories. Um, yeah, I mean, this this feels like uh, pretty similar to the sort of like varieties of capitalism kind of argument or like um, a lot of like I remember, uh, you know, uh, Feinberg, for example, wrote some case studies about how like the Japanese techno structure varies from other other uh, uh, techno structures, like, you know, looking at case studies of like, well, there's this interesting kind of arrangement in Japan. It's not to say that it's not f- like fundamentally part of a capitalist system. Uh, it's just like there are varieties of capitalism. There are varieties of feudalism, right? Like like not looking at the mode of production as a monolith, uh, looking at it as a more of a kind of hodgepodge or an, an assemblage. Not not a term used here, but I think it fits. <laughs> it fits, yeah, def- it definitely does. Um, there's also a, the the the, um, the notion of the ambivalence of technology is kind of important here as well. That like yeah, there's the 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 social the f- feudalism kind of flowed from its material base, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there was only one kind of feudalism. And the same goes for all sorts of different so- uh, societies, and that kind of keeps the door open again for a different kind of modernity that isn't. Um, the capitalism we know, right? Right, which was really the kind of like logic that those you know Soviet people and, uh, and 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 Japanese people were seizing on. The theorists were seizing on was like, well, you know, we we can have something different. It's like, yeah, but it's it's not different in a fundamental sense, right? So it's like it's kind of like evidence. I think that at the time this was written, or slightly before that, in like the nineties. Um, there was a lot of sort of interest in this idea just because the notion of there is no alternative was so oppressive and the notion of the Washington consensus was so oppressive that to find any kind of variety in the world at all was in a way promising, right? It was it gave it gave some hope that there might be something different that could happen because it just showed that no, it's not hom- homogeneous. There is difference in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of really wonderful bits here um, that kind of do point towards those kind of points of rupture. Um, the first being, the one that jumps out to me is that, like, if a different technological civilization won't emerge from ethics or politics, then it has to emerge from some distinction that's imminent to the system itself. And there's an obvious one, which is the distinction between those who command and those who obey. So the, the distinction of power um, as the the site of uh, of rupture for this um, this 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 change, um, and this is like really really crucially important. And it's especially important to kind of like help shoot down the instrumentalists as well. That like it, technology is a two sided thing, right? Like that there's you know there's an operator and an object, right? And then when both the operator and the object are people, then the use of technology is inherently 
a uh, exercise of power. It is inherently political when when you are operating on other people <laughs> as the as the object. You know, um, that's just wonderfully wonderfully put. You know, yeah, that that's 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 exactly correct. Uh, this is really the fundamental point that Feinberg is making about um, criticizing both the the sort of um, instrumentalists and substantive theories. Is like we can look at something within technology the domain of technological operation that is not just about efficiency right yeah yeah definitely um this is you know resistance is going to be challenged to the hierarchy the kind of the the the, the, the lay actors of the system versus the institutionalized power um and so he, he brings us on to um he starts to lean on um two two theorists uh Desarteau and Foucault did I get those right yep Cool. Yeah. Um, not familiar. I'm sort of semi-familiar with Foucault, but um, not familiar at all with uh, Desertot. But yeah, we, we get introduced to this really fantastic term, right? The the operational autonomy um, at this point, which is the, the 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 strategic standpoint of management. Yeah, that's a that's a great way of putting it. It's um, just excellent. Yeah, that that management, because it has operational autonomy, is able to act strategically, which is to say at a broad scale, right? Uh, we were talking about uh, earlier uh, in this series, sort of like the war of position, war of maneuver. If you're operating strategically, you're directing that war, right? Like you, you, uh, you're, you're operating in many different theaters or many different situations at once. This is, this is the, 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 the perspective of, of sort of like high command. Yeah, it's um, and the sort of opposite of it is the, um, the tactical standpoint of the managed, right? Like, which is um, which is which is richer and more complex, um, and is embedded and embodied within this um, this world of technology. So you have the the, the managers on high doing the strategic stuff, um, but the the sort of managed in the trenches actually engaged with the technology directly. And this this sort of two sided view of it tells us a lot more than substantivism does. Um, this is vastly more useful. Yes. Um, yeah, because the the substantive theory of technology really can only see the sort of strategic level of operation. Does not really have the resolution to look down into this this kind of tactical perspective. And I mean, you know, it is certainly the case that operating at the level of tactics is inferior to operating the level of strategy. <laughs> yeah. If you can only operate at the level of tactics, like, well, yeah, you won the battle but lost the war, right? That's that's the fundamental distinction. And, you know, Dissertot was very much aware of that distinction, but I think it was... This theory was kind of come at... or come up with at a point of such fundamental reactionary strength and, and, and the failure of left movements that it was really like a theory of how can we get anything at all how can we even resist like what what can we like what can we even cling on to um so you know it, it's it's right to say well hey but if you can only do tactics and not strategy you're probably in trouble uh, but <laughs> it's better than nothing. <laughs> it is, but isn't it, the promise here is that like um, that the the tactics could become strategy by yeah. But we're, we're going to get to that later, right? It's it's yeah. It's um, 
sort of that the basic level of this this metaphor um it's 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 clear that like yeah one person is kind of in the broader level of control and then the other person is in the uh this sort of like trying to make the best of a bad situation yeah and there's a there's a sort of nice uh, kind of section here about um a sort of a culture of responsibility that like uh, we sort of the, the the present hegemony sort of presumes that you know workers are can't possibly be interested in the um, the running of things. Um, but that's only that's only because that's the way things are now, right? That like a culture of responsibility uh, rather than a, a you know a, a culture of mass participation is actually possible, and um, that like you know the the the, uh, the passivity that we sort of see in the kind of third way welfare state sort of arrangement of um, of social democracy isn't the actual natural state of human beings it's you know a, a, a historical contingency different is possible that's the kind of the, the the ringing sort of um call through this whole thing is that you know different is possible and that like we we can actually have a a, a um it's 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 important that he puts emphasis on a co- coherent alternative configurations of modern civilization because he's, he's not talking about primitivism he's not talking about some sort of like conceptually incoherent sort of idealist sort of thing it's like no we, 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 we can have a coherent alternative that isn't you know immiseration by collapsing back to a pre-lingual state <laughs> you know? yeah so. because you know if we have a culture of responsibility it means that workers will they must act rationally for the system to continue right like the, the, the there's it's this kind of thing that you see a lot in the frankfurt school of like this kind of desire or call for like a return to or a creation of like mass rationality right um uh and uh and so you know if if we were to if we were able to create the culture of responsibility successfully, then yeah, we would be operating at the level of strategy, right? Uh, eventually, it, 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 it's just uh, that's the goal. Yeah, it's it, it's good stuff. I mean, this this is invigorating reading, right? Like it's it's kind of nice to um, it's nice to have an argument against Ted, right? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, like and and you know, if you read the Dialectic of Enlightenment. It's an incredibly pessimistic book, so it's it's nice to have a response to something like that too, which isn't just like oh things aren't that bad, like like those kinds of like I don't know sort of like weak uh, denials of of the premise um, are are so much less satisfying than uh, actually coming up with a theory like this that that has some more. Um, sophistication and, and analytic strength to it. It has teeth, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, sort of moving on to the next bit, um, humanism and history. We get, uh, Feinberg has this really great argument here that like, yeah, that like human societies should be about enabling uh, fulfillment uh, for all and, and human flourishing, but that the, the technical arrangements of the current uh, society actually place limitations on human development uh, more so than they, they free them up. But yeah, he's got this kind of nice thing here that like... Um, well, what's all this human fulfillment bit about? What's what's all this stuff about capacities? Well, like that, and that there there aren't really any absolute answers, and all we really have is this unfinished history with a bunch of signposts along the way, such as emancipation struggles, universal education, uh, suffrage, and you know various uh, progressive cultural changes, and like the emergence of individuality and individual expression. Um, that we're 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 the products of this kind of 
the winding history of unfolding capacities. And we sort of recognize um, the new struggles that are still being fought, right? Like, this is just sort of, like, imminent to who we are, that, like, we, we, we don't like chains. You know, we, we rattle against them and, and struggle to break free, and then we, we recognize what the, the, the new chains, the remaining chains are, and we recognize those and struggle to break free of those again. Um, it's this historical unfolding of capacities. And it gets kind of into really interesting sort of um, definitions of, like, how these kind of new demands are are manifest, right? Um, and the term he introduces is participant interests uh, is one of the one of the ways this articulates. Yeah, it's a sort of expression of the sort of the interests of of people, right? And like recognizing when there's a gap between people's interests and the current sort of code of the society, and opening up this kind of opportunity for reconfiguration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and you have noted here that this is like dialectics, right? Well, it, 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 it is, absolutely. This is um, people using their negative capacity for criticism to um, identify social problems and overcome them, right? So the fear of people like um, Adorno or uh, uh, Marcuse was that people no longer had this capacity because the system was so total. But, you know, Feinberg is certainly saying, like, that's not true, right? The, the, there, there is room still for critical thought and for progress on the basis of mm. critical thinking. And there's always potentiality, right? Like, you can always, you can always imagine better, right? Like, it's, it's just a sort of... You know, one, one of the few things you can ascribe to human nature is that our, our imagination for slightly better circumstances, you know, um, and the, 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 that, that like in, the, that infinite tension between the, the, the sort of actualities of the present and the historical opportunities of the present and the or kind of like compulsion to cross, cross that gap when, it, when it's possible to do so. And yeah, we get introduced to another fantastic term, which is the, the technical code. And it's kind of like condensed, codified interest. Yes. So it, it, it's basically like because management has operational autonomy, they are able to make choices about how technologies are brought together in such a way that perpetuates their operational autonomy. And that arrangement is the technical code, right? It is... It is um, this kind of like high level system of technical arrangements, um, which is the arrangements, but also the norms they imply about what is good design, what is good technically. Yeah, so it's it's a way of sort of um, it's like, like general general solutions to problems, right? Like it's this kind of like quite high level thing. This is this isn't like the concretion of technologies, right? Like um this is a kind of a governing sort of rule structure above it. And yeah, it's it's like it provides a ranking function for like what is considered good technical activity and how how to differentiate between what is permitted and what is not permitted. Um yeah, I know it, you can kind of think about it similar to like standard operating procedure or like best practices. Um that sort of level of like high yeah, uh, general uh, encompassing um, technical arrangements and practices. And because it's so high level, it's hard to argue against often, you know, it's, um, it's hard. Yeah, to it's, it's often missed, right? When, when people debate technologies, 
they often get fixated on the artifacts and their very obvious uses and ignore the technical code. Yeah. So, like, and it's important here as well that like efficiency is the usual ranking function that is is kind of posited for this stuff. Um, that we will we will source different solutions from each other according to their efficiency. But you know, efficiency isn't the only actual criterion, right? Like, that's the kind of thing. There's there's a sort of a mystification going on here where the official line is that oh, we'll we'll decide between different technical solutions based on their efficiency. But there's also this. Um, criterion of like whether the solution fits the sort of overall uh, interests of the people who who kind of determine the technical code <laughs> you know yeah like who defines efficiency right yeah so like there's 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 examples here where like there's um there could be two solutions one that uh, two solutions of equal efficiency one that applies worker skills and one that eliminates them so that like the tiebreaker will go to the one that serves capital interests, you know, even if they're even mm-hmm. if it's just as efficient to, if it's just as even if it's just as efficient to empower the workers, you'll still get the disempowerment because that's, or even if it's more efficient. Aha! Uh-huh. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because operational autonomy is like the most important thing. So even if, like he gives some examples where it's like yeah work like implementing the technology that would um empower workers would be uh lower cost and more efficient but it would impair the power of management or it would at least appear to impair the power of management and this is this is very much getting back to the argument that graber makes right about uh, uh flying cars and falling rate of profit that it that that there has been or that the, the design choices that are made at a general social level are always towards the end of maintaining what Feinberg calls operational autonomy and not towards like some alternative criterion of efficiency that could be, say, you know, workplace safety, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, health and well-being, uh, meaningful lives, like, you know, all those things, right? Or even even just like sort of basically technical criteria like speed, yeah, <laughs> right. Like, yeah. <laughs> the the workplace safety one is interesting because that's actually kind of related to one of the the upcoming uh, kind of sections about um, how kind of like ethical demands are often eventually folded into technical codes um, because like a given a given interest such as you know worker safety can't be expressed in terms of the technical code, so. The people make an appeal to um, some, uh, you know, transcendental uh, kind of um, kind of nature to say we we ethically we have a right to be safe in the workplace. That will eventually get folded into regulations, which are you know technical codes, the the generalities of regulations. But then they'll eventually be forgotten, right? Like it'll 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 kind of just disappear into the fabric of the the technosphere. Um, yeah, like, oh, of course your car has a seatbelt. Of course uh, your car has airbags. Of course your car has a catalytic converter. Uh, you know, these none of these things used to be standard artifacts of what a car is. Um, yeah, but, like, in, in general, still, though, like, operational autonomy, like, armors the system against recognition of many different interests. Like, you can only kind of get them... You can only get the technical code to encode some interest, um 
after usually after a kind of fairly long struggle to uh, to make like a transcendent a, a kind of like an ethical demand then coupled with you know the threat of revolution <laughs> if it doesn't get met or something like that yeah. <laughs> um, yeah 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 totally but in general like you know the oper- the operational autonomy wins um you know and like we get a touch point here for what would what would it mean to democratize technology well it would mean reprivileging those excluded publics and their values right like that um allowing those interests to be considered instead of the uh runaway operational autonomy to be the the thing that determines how things turn out yeah and i mean you can think about concrete examples like say uh making accessibility like a norm of design right like that is that is something that people have had to fight very hard to get whatever um whatever encoding uh they they have been able to right um it's you know like in the building code uh or whatever that that is that is a technical code right um having having wheelchair accessibility is uh something that people had to fight for very hard to get uh and so this this kind of struggle to privilege uh you know marginalized or excluded publics it 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 does have effects but it's it's very difficult unless you have a democratic control of technology yeah and yeah speaking of democratic control of technology uh, the next the next section kind of is about um Technical politics and kind of beginning from the example of Marx, who was like the, you know, first proposed the idea that um, an economy controlled by the workers would be able to design technology such that high skill would be applied to production instead of excluded from production. And that this this would be ultimate human empowerment, right? Um, which is kind of, it's an interesting thing because like, um, you know, you get these like um, Silicon Valley techno accelerationist dipshit utopian kind of guys and the, the thing they're imagining is this like ultimate fusion of um technology with the human into this ultimate empowerment except ca- that's the thing that capitalism doesn't deliver you know it, it delivers exactly. disempowerment instead right like if you if you want to um o- like authentically fuse human like libidinal skill and power productivity with some cybernetic augmentations you're kind of going to want your communism instead right like <laughs> it's empowerment in the sense of operational autonomy right <laughs> that's the empowerment they're thinking about because yeah. you know operational autonomy does empower managers and capitalists um it's just not a generalized empowerment no it's a it's a it's a special empowerment for the few you know in this kind of classically um Classically sort of liberal sense of like having this partitioned um, socius where there's a there's a there's a partition within which you have this kind of autonomy and there's a partition in which you don't. Um, yeah, it's the it's the steampunk version of, of empowerment, right? Like <laughs> cool neato technologies for rich white dudes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in this section, we get a bit of a run through of like, you know, the sort of labor process um sort of theory of like capitalists imposing labor discipline on the workflow workforce through these kind of technological mediations which privilege de-skilling uh, to exclude skilled workers um but there's a funny bit here where this kind of like that it, it sort of that interest then becomes encoded in like you know education and thus goes on to shape the entire social life right like the the exclusion and de-skilling is um is a structuring thing that spreads everywhere but it's kind of funny as well that like um you know they they kind of want um highly skilled and also highly unskilled workers you know there's a there's a fundamental tension inside of capitalism there 
yeah it's i mean it's that it is a, it is a fundamental tension that that um you want to be or you want your workers to be maximally capable and maximally subservient and you can't have both at the same time <laughs> so that's why you get things like stratification of the education system right oh like the man like you know white collar workers and like you know different different levels of universities which have different levels of development of human capacities like uh, you know if you if you work uh, or if you attend a low level university Oh, well, they'll probably give you some vocational training and just a sort of, uh, if, if you're lucky, some kind of passing reference to uh, some of the intellectual heritage of humanity, some of the general intellect that might actually enrich your life. If you go to a highly uh, privileged, uh, highly resourced university that is designed to create leaders and elites, uh, then you'll probably be given a very deep appreciation yeah. of these things. Well, it's because you're you're intended to enter into the operationally autonomous sphere. Yeah, that's that's the intention there. It's it's the replication of uh, of interests again, <laughs> you know. Um, and there's kind of a continuum between those two poles, right? So there's a stratification of the workforce between people who are supposed to act like um, you know work animals uh, and people who are supposed to act like you know these brainy commander types. Um, very, very brave new world, right? Um, yeah, very, uh, very, very shitty. <laughs> Not the thing we want. Yeah, because it is, it is limiting. It is limiting actual human flourishing, right? Like this is not a system that actually empowers things. Yeah, I mean, as as a educator at a low level university, I feel this pain on a very deep level. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, but there's there's one there's one small section there here before we get on to like a, a quite a meaty one that we should spend a bit of time on. Uh, there's just this bit about like reconceptualizing socialism as um, yeah the possibility for like mixed economies, um, combined markets and socialism, like state control to like take over stuff and guarantee human flourishing. It reminds me a little bit of the stuff we had in um, uh, markets in the name of socialism, and I think we in which we gave those sort of ideas a pretty thorough going over, but. Feinberg does kind of end that section on a kind of very pragmatic note that, like, I mean, even if we do want to end up in full communism, like, that we're, we're not there yet. And so, it, realistically, then the next immediate step is going to be some variety of mixed economy. So, yeah, that's, um, that's what it is. Yeah, I, I think the idea is, like, rather than the scenario where, and, like, he'll get into this later, but rather than the scenario where you have the the revolutionary vanguard get into power and then, like, implement by fiat a dem democratic technological agenda as, you know, in the sort of standard uh, communist model, what we need is more continuity, right? Where the democratization is, is something that is continuous with the political struggle rather than simply a product of the political struggle um because it's just that's just not going to work right that just yeah i mean because it's not like government uh or sorry like a uh, political activists have some kind of magic power that allows them to you know implement democratized technologies that have been designed and, and prototyped and worked out by by fiat uh, they have to deal with the existing techno structure so if the development of the techno structure in some kind of democratic direction is uh, is is not continuous with the revolutionary process um, it, it becomes an almost insurmountable problem and 
you know, I think a really good example of like, what does it look like to combine redevelopment of the techno structure with the revolutionary process uh, would be, for example, like uh, the Project Cybersyn stuff we talked about with Stafford Beer, right? It wasn't perfect, but this idea that the technological revolution had to be in sync with the political revolution was absolutely part of the ideology there. Yeah, and it's it's good, it's great. <laughs> you know, um, this is this is the yeah. stuff we're into. You <laughs> yeah. know, this is um, and this gives so much answer to um, I don't know, like what you get out of a lot of contemporary, I don't know, Leninists or whatever of like kind of quibbling about vanguard sort of stuff or whatever and like it seems to be a lot, a lot of people are still stuck on this idea of like instantaneous revolutionary transformation or whatever um this this is this is not that right like this is um transformation as an emerging process um and one one that is ongoing rather than like um a kind of oh you you march into the the big city square and you wave red banners and you take over and it's great you know um yeah i mean i i don't think it's the case that you know, you could implement a revolution in the technical sphere and that would be sufficient or that you could get there by means of just sort of like, you know, incrementalism through like, I don't know, union bargaining or something. But it is, it's still nevertheless important that there are capacities out there in society to make those kind of changes in the event that a political revolution is successful, right? If they're not there, it's it's just a non-starter. It's just a complete non-starter. Yeah. Yeah, really, really is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the last sort of um, section of this chapter is kind of a meaty one in which um, uh, Feinberg gives a sort of a, you know, a fair hearing and kind of a shoot down to some of the, the other radical alternatives. And uh, you know explains why why he's maybe not on board for them and um, and like kind of reinforces some of the points of his critical theory. He begins with the sort of talking about like the post-humanist alternative, um, and he kind of opens with like talking about like potentialities. How like there, are, it's a thing we've been talking about so far, but like suppressed potentiality within um, the current system, and that like can we can we have a radical stance without that notion of potentiality, which I believe is is a is a notion that is lost in the post-humanist um sort of discourse but I'm, I'm not actually all that familiar with um i found this quite a hard section to read so i'm, I'm gonna gonna hand over to you to maybe explain some of what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah okay so um i i think that this is this is definitely taking up that kind of humanist uh kind of uh critical theory perspective um, it's got a little bit of basis in Aristotle, a little bit of basis in Marx, a little bit of basis in, in Kant, um, a little bit, a little bit of basis in Hegel, uh, a little bit of all that. And it's it's you know saying that there is a characteristic of human thought which allows it to imagine the world to be otherwise and to come up with negative critiques of what exists. And that is something that is sort of fundamentally human. Um, and it, it is a basis for the articulation of, say, new human rights, right? Um, that, is, that is an avenue towards liberation. Um, it's, humans can identify their needs that are not met by the current situation and can work 
to have those me have those needs uh, recognized and fulfilled. And so this is this is something like a a a, uh, a transcendental horizon for social criticism, something that doesn't actually exist in this world but can exist in thought. And Feinberg looks at posthumanism in sort of two varieties, uh, both the sort of like posthumanism that's associated with uh, Haraway, um, kind of cyborg, cyborg feminism kind of ideas, and uh, also looks at the quote unquote posthumanism of actor network theory, right? Uh, where you have, like, this is associated with Latour, and it's basically a method for looking at particular situations and sort of deconstructing the assumptions of the human, looking at things we would t typically consider to be objects to be acted upon by human beings and acknowledging how they are actants like people, that there's a, there's a, there's a kind of equality between humans and things within the network. Like humans, nature, and technology are like... It kind of indistinguishable from each other. They yes, in the sense that they are all actants, they mm. become okay. largely indistinguishable from each other. And so, the main point that that Feinberg is making here is to say none of this provides um, the same kind of potential for critique and articulation of social change and recognition of social change that you get with an acknowledgement of what is special about human thought and human rationality. Now, I think as far as a critique of uh, actor network theory goes, that is 100% valid. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a completely fair critique yeah. uh, because... Um, I have never seen once uh, convincing uh, use of actor network theory to provide a meaningful social criticism. Uh, it is, it's very good at sort of questioning our hubris, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, but as far as sort of like um, criticizing serious social problems or... Uh, you know, like getting beyond kind of micro situations that are really neat and let you write papers, not not super fantastic. And so, um, yeah, so it's it's kind of it's kind of skepticism and hyper uh, micro focus um, make it a very poor candidate for you know saying, hey, maybe slavery is bad. Yeah. Right? So the, the example. <laughs> like, um... Feinberg uses an example here of like um, an Amazonian tribe where um, the belief is that uh, men turn into jaguars after they die and women just disappear. And that in this in this actor network thing, um, the the Amazonian feminist has absolutely nothing to point towards as a transcendent position to like defend her case for a better status in the afterlife because it's all swallowed in the network and the only thing that matters is the interrelation of the objects and there's nothing special about her so she's fucked you <laughs> know it's just no you're never going to get a better position in that society because there's just no there's nothing you can point towards that leads out yeah which is you know it's um which is it's a very strange example 
Yeah, like on yeah. so many levels. <laughs> it's such a weird example. Like, who is this Amazonian tribes person who is literate in actor network theory <laughs> and also neo-Kantian philosophy? Like, this this is this is very weird. But um, it, it's but I think the point is that like it's a common sense. It, in this in this example, it would be a normal reaction for the woman. The, the the Amazonian feminist here to say no I'm a human being cut the bullshit I I also get to turn into a jaguar that's there's a natural and just common sense um, way in which we appeal to things outside of the immediate network of stuff in order to to make a point well and and, and I mean she could she could use her reason to say hey, uh, as far as I can tell, you men are not becoming tigers. <laughs> that too, right? right? <laughs> like, but the point is that within the, within the actor network theory, all of that is impossible, essentially. There's, it's, there's just, it's impossible yeah. because there's no, there's no standpoint to make such a criticism. Uh, and and, 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 and there, there's, no, there's no privileging of a certain relationship between reason and nature. Um, all highly problematic. <laughs> yeah, know. so... I will say uh, that I, I definitely uh, was was interested in this critique um, because we have we have talked a lot about cybernetics. We've talked a lot about sort of post-human stuff on this on this podcast, and and uh, it's it's really good to to see this kind of like deep uh, criticism of uh, of that whole mode of thinking. And and I have I have gone and like tried to to look at some alternatives, uh, post-human alternatives or critical post-human alternatives that have been written since this book was written. And it does seem like there are some responses to what Feinberg is saying. It's just the the kind of stuff he's criticizing at the point of development it was at at that point in time was susceptible to this kind of critique. And it's not to say that there aren't holes in the perspective that Greenberg is advancing either. <laughs> yeah, sure. But I think we'll get to those when we talk in more depth about critical post-humanism. Yeah, we, we have something lined up for that um, at some point later. Um, yeah, I guess maybe my sort of... Um, I had a little bit of difficulty with this, this section because of its um, kind of... Like, I, I get kind of weirded out when there's kind of appeals to... Um, transcendent stuff because it often feels like it's going to be some appeal to a divine nature nature or something um oh yeah whereas i think i think but i I think the thing that's being appealed to is is this is where i get tripped up because i'm just not immersed in the philosophical sort of um terminology enough but like appealing to the human mind's ability to generate um scenarios that are different from the current actuality feels like an an imminent property of the mind, not a transcendent one. But I mean, I get what you mean when it's like, it's transcendent because it points outside of the... Uh, yeah, it's it's transcendent of the existing state of affairs. That's what it's transcending. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I quite I quite like, um, like, I guess I was reading a thing about like, um, kind of post-nihilist sort of uh, philosophy or praxis or whatever. And one of the things there was that like, um, even after you've given up on transcendent truths or like kind of metaphysical sort of truth or whatever, you're still left in a world in which you have ample evidence that humans are strange, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's just a practical sort of thing to it of like imminently to the behavior of human beings. You just understand that there's something odd about these things. And that's, that's enough to carry an argument for the specialness of humans, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit sort of aware, and like I think I think also like I mean we we agree with so much of this post-human sort of stuff in the kind of like 
the need to acknowledge non-human things as being valid and real because i think we have we have mounting evidence that the privileging of the human subject is fucking disastrous you know <laughs> that too you yeah know? and, and <laughs> i mean there are a lot of sort of points of criticism we could get into here of of the perspective that that Feinberg is advancing but i think um just to sort of uh state the case of the critical theorists or of these like you know sort of neo-kantian influenced people they they would appeal to aesthetic norms like this is what marcuse did right that the problem with our current civilization is that our conception of reason has become divorced from our conception of what is beautiful and if we acknowledge and reason on the basis of our conception of the aesthetic, then we could create a world that would be more holistic, uh, less violent, and would take into account non-human uh, value. But it is fundamentally a view that says what we can articulate in thought and language is what really matters. And that means that the only people who can make valuations are people, are human beings, not anything else. That we are, we, are, we are spectators who look out on a meaningless world and assign value to it. And the reason why we can make that into something, something meaningful is because we can use our reason to see in the world something uh you know harmonious and beautiful um so that that was that is that is the kind of um critique that or like that was the kind of a marcusean response to say environmentalism right now there are ways you could criticize that perspective but it's it's not to say that they like they simply like they have the, the, there there is no thought in this direction whatsoever right like <laughs> uh, um yeah so I, again i think we'll we'll kind of dig into this more when we talk about we talk about critical posthumanism because um, i think it's a really important topic but it's a huge topic mm -hmm. um yeah yeah <laughs> we, we, we don't have the time for it right now yeah yeah definitely. um but I suppose, yeah, the last the last bit of this chapter then is about the kind of like, in contrast to that stuff, like the contribution of critical theory. And one of the main contributions or the kind of fundamental insight is this, like um, the excess of the particular over the universal, right? That like the reality is is too rich and too complex to be ever fully grasped, which, um, you know, reminds us a lot of the kind of cybernetic ontologies we saw in, um, in uh, the cybernetic brain, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is, yeah, it... That is that is true. That is that is definitely true. It is similar to the um, viable systems theory in the sense that uh, the particular is in excess of the universal. But uh, I, I mean, what this really means in layman's terms, in terms of critical theory, is like people can articulate criticisms of accepted norms and society, right? Like an in like when. I see an injustice in the world, think about it, and articulate that injustice in language. I am able to make a claim that has validity regardless of what is accepted as generally true. And, and uh, 
you know, it's it's just going back to the thing we just talked about, right? Where like we can imagine a different world, another world is possible, and we can think about it. And those claims are not meaningless. Yeah, but the uh, the inverse of that is domination, where the uh, the universal bears down on those judgments and suppresses them, right? Like that's the um... yeah, it's it's like the old. Uh catholic education system or whatever right that's that's the universal <laughs> suppressing the particular it's like these are the dogmas you must learn them and they're incontrovertibly true yeah <laughs> um so like there's there's this sort of like talk of nature here which um which i, I think I kind, of, I kind of maybe didn't quite get what was what was going on here but is it sort of like the nature of the individual as um as something kind of external to, or something mm-hmm. which escapes the, the system? Uh, yeah, like it's the individual's capacity for critical thinking. Right, sure. Right? That, okay. that we, can, we can negate the world as it is in thought. That is what is special about us. That negativity is, is, um, is, is the core of our capacity to create progress yeah in this this line of thinking and we and we express we express that stuff in terms of like these kind of universal concepts right of like nature and justice and humanity and such um yeah yeah like oh um you know you can uh say for example um make claims like uh you know hey actually women are not naturally uh less intelligent than men Right, and you can do that on the basis of your reason and your capacity for understanding. Yeah, um, and it's you know this these um, these these understandings and these um, these objections and these values that are being expressed should be um, you know harnessed and historicized and turned into new situations instead of like trying to abolish them by um, by pre- pretending that the the network or the system totalizes everything and makes these kinds of things mm-hmm. impossible. Right, <laughs> it's kind of silly. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Because there is a, there is a. I mean, this is the problem that he identifies with actor network theory. Is like the universal has the principle of inclusion, but it doesn't have the principle of recognizing the excess of the particular, right? Like of the individual. So, and therefore, it just becomes a kind of extensive, oppressive network of involvement. Um, yeah, and like. Um it's like that, and because it can't totalize everything, it becomes like frustrated with itself, and then tries harder to totalize everything, and then still fails to do it. And you just mm-hmm. get this like ever, yeah. ever, ever spreading repression that never actually manages to succeed fully in in bringing about the thing it wants. Um, yeah, I, I I really feel like this is also uh, applicable to a lot of economics. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But, yeah, like, you know, a valid answer that we have seen on this show would, for example, be like the viable systems theory, right? Like that that it does recognize the excess of the particular over the universal, as you said. Yeah, exactly. It's very reminiscent of that that sort of cybernetic ontology Um, or just like I I don't think that's what Feinberg's trying to get at here. But like, I think it's there's a lot of. No, 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 no. Um, no, I was. I'm just saying it's it's something that's in that that realm of cybernetics that is not susceptible to the criticism that Feinberg's making here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose yeah, wrapping up, it's sort of like um, there's this really nice term as well of like dynamic reflexive capacity. That that's that's what that's what humans have as the sort of um, their their ability to resist, and it's kind of a kind of a nice way to nice way to put it. Um, yeah, and it's kind of like. Um, 
this is all that's all very like rooted in like Aristotle, right? That you know, it's part of our nature to be thinking things. Um, and it, we we should develop that capacity because it's in our nature to do so. It's it's it, our our flourishing uh, relies upon the development of our capacity for thought, um, and that you know that's that's like core sort of humanist um, values. Yeah, yeah, and that leads back to Finberg's core point here at the end that like the the te technical enterprise can deliver on these potentialities but the present society kind of artificially truncates that capacity um and the the way out is more more democratic participation and the kind of like actual worker control of technology but, and also that like this kind of crucial final point that like the the controlling character of the contemporary capitalist system doesn't exhaust all the potentialities of this of of that technology right like it's it's an application of that kind of stuff, but it's not um, it's not the the eternal character of of technology. Yeah, because the technical code can be criticized in thought and can be remade if the workers who are involved in it are themselves given the opportunity to develop and are and and, and implement uh, their ideas. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. It's a it's a great chapter. It's um it's a long one. Um, it's it's sort of it, it's it's doing a big whistle stop tour of a lot of the ideas, um, but it's 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 really fantastic stuff. Um, I think we covered pretty much all of that. But uh, is there anything else you'd like to get in before we wrap this one up? Uh, no, I think we've pretty thoroughly gone over this chapter. Um, there's, there's really very little left for me to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it ran a bit longer. Especially this we considering hoping. we got another two to go. <laughs> yeah, we've got another two to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks listeners for putting up with us on this one. Um, and we'll, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with, uh, with uh, chapter two. Um, we'll, we'll be talking about kind of Marxism specifically and sort of like um you know transitions um so transitions to a socialist world um in the meantime you can catch us on twitter at giunitpod we're on facebook if you just search for general intellect unit uh and we're on all the podcast things so you know subscribe if you haven't done so already all that sort of stuff or um share us with your friends it's another great way to support the show uh and the other way to support the show is to um maybe throw us a couple of bucks a month on patreon we're on uh, patreon.com slash general intellect unit um it, it helps to pay for books it helps to kind of like pay for hosting and stuff like that um and you know if we ever get rich off of this we can um you know quit the day job and do this full time and we won't be in in such a rush to uh, to get through the reading <laughs> you know yeah you'll you'll have more philosophy of technology than you know what to do mm, with indeed yeah <laughs> could, could go weekly then um go twice a week mm. i don't know I, I think there's a limit to the velocity you can you can achieve with a lot of these this sort of material like It'd be hard. Yeah. To, it'd be hard to get through this much quicker. Um, anyway, yeah, we'll uh, we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye.